In Yesterday, Himesh Patel plays Jack Malik, an English singer whose career is going nowhere. His parents don't understand him, but he's got the support of his friends, especially Ellie, his manager, played by Lily James. One night, Jack gets hit by a bus at the precise moment of a worldwide power outage, and when he wakes up, he learns that he's in a world where the Beatles never existed. So he starts playing their songs, the world soon hears them for the first time, and Jack finds his entire life upended. I'm Stephen Thompson. On this episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR, we are talking yesterday. We've convened an all-NPR music panel to discuss this music-rich movie. And first up is Daoud Tyler Amin. Hi, Daoud. Hey, Stephen. It's a pleasure to have you here. Also with us, Lindsay McKenna. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Stephen. And Lars Godrich. Hey, Lars. Hey, Stephen. It is a joy to have you all here to discuss <laughs> this odd movie <laughs> <laughs> say the least I'm, now I'm gonna go around the table and get your initial sense of uh, of yesterday Lindsay I'm gonna start with you all right yesterday was two hours long we were there and honestly I felt every bit of those two hours and at the same time I couldn't get a sense of time in the film the whole journey of Jack from sort of a guitar guy on the street it was a whirlwind but it was also completely all over, and I couldn't get a sense of where we were going. It was impossible for me to not feel, like, just complete joy at those songs washing over us. Like, I am not impervious to the Beatles catalog. <laughs> I don't think anyone in that theater was. But at the same time, I just kept thinking, like, this is all too much. It was too much of a concept. And within that concept, there were three separate movies in my mind. Yeah. All right. How about you, Lars? All right. So I, I told my adorable Bolivian father-in-law that I was going to be seeing this movie. And there are, he only listens to three bands. He listens to the Beatles, he listens to ELO, and he listens to Queen. And that's that's pretty much the scope of like his love. So those are the only things that matter to him. And so this movie exists for the Beatles superfans, mm -hmm. for them to come to... And so it's hard for me to dunk on a movie that's just about loving the Beatles. Right. And so I... <laughs> <laughs> so here goes. <laughs> I echo much of what Lindsay has just said. I, the conceit, I don't really have a problem with. It's kind of a fun idea for a movie. Like, what if not the Beatles? And <laughs> But the problem that it kind of keeps running into, as Lindsay says, is like sometimes it wants to be a rom-com. Sometimes it wants to be a science fiction movie. Sometimes it just wants to be like a nice little afternoon special. And I don't know which one of the three it's trying to be at any one time. And I never felt invested in any of the characters' love for this music or for each other. I didn't like this movie a lot. <laughs> All right. How about you, Doug? This movie tears me a little because I think it has some interesting ideas. I think that looking at something that is that feels so much part of the source code of modern culture and trying to imagine a world without it is sort of an interesting thought experiment. And I think it's especially interesting in a moment where people are reevaluating their relationship to certain kinds of art, cutting certain people's art out of their lives sure. entirely for certain reasons. In, in the end, there's, there's some storytelling choices where I think I maybe liked it the most out of all of us, and I still felt a little betrayed. I, I think it's messy no matter how you look at it. Yeah, and I'm actually, I'm with you in feeling more mixed than negative. To me, 
if you look at who's behind this movie, this movie is directed by Danny Boyle, whose aesthetic has been all over the place. What a who strange is, career. Who has yeah. had a very strange career. Everything from Steve Jobs to 28 Days Later to Train Spotting to Slumdog Millionaire. Mm-hmm. And so nailing down an aesthetic for Danny Boyle is tricky, but it's also written by Richard Curtis, who wrote Notting Hill and Four Weddings and a Funeral and Love Actually. And say whatever you will about Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis does have an aesthetic. And that aesthetic Mm -hmm. is a movie that it is extremely pleasurable to watch on basic cable at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And so... To me, this movie kind of exists as two things, right? It is a basic cable romp about this loose collection of knockabout friends and the goofy parents and and all that feels very Richard Curtis. But it is also a science fiction movie. It's It's a what if. It's an alternate universe thing. And... As a two o'clock in the afternoon on basic cable movie, I think it basically works. As a science fiction movie, it is a complete plop. It does not work at all as a piece of science fiction. It does nothing to tie its own logical threads together. It does nothing to explain anything. The explanation for why this happens and what the effect is might as well be Thanos snapping his fingers. (laughs) And then it doesn't really do that much to contend with how the world would be different. They establish, without spoiling too much, they establish that other things have disappeared, but they don't go into... The effect of that, to me, is is shockingly minimal yeah. for, for a movie that loves the Beatles so much. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Marvel. The, the, it was part of my curiosity going into it is like, is this going to feel more like a music biopic, which we're awash in these days, or is it going to be like a franchise prequel where you sort of see the moment coming where you're like, oh, that's how, you know, <laughs> that's where Wolverine got his leather jacket or whatever it is. <laughs> and you do get a little bit of that. But I think you're right. You sort of want to understand the emotional stakes uh, of something like this happening. Why this guy? Why the Beatles? And why the, the handful of other things are different? I went in imagining that it would be sort of like a, like a time travel parable. And in a way, it's almost like a little bit more of like a, like a Spider-Verse thing. Like everything's basically the same, but it's just like a couple important tweaks. I think you're exactly right, because my first impression when walking out of the theater was like, if this is on on a Saturday afternoon and I'm like doing laundry, cleaning the house, like, oh, there will be Beatles songs in the background. (laughs) Like, that makes sense. That's a nice experience. I can envision like, you know, when I'm visiting my folks that like it'll be on on basic cable and it'll be fine. But I think that you're right, because I kept imagining like, why does this universe feel so wholly unsatisfying? And I think it's because we don't really have a clear indicator of why some things are in it and why some things aren't. I kept asking, like, why, especially when there are a lot of cultural signifiers in terms of bands that, you know, Jack is a musician and he's wearing band shirts and on his wall there are band posters. He really likes the Fratellis. He really likes the Fratellis. <laughs> he's clearly a Chicago Blackhawks fan. I don't understand why he's a Fratellis fan and he has the Killers poster on his wall. And yet, you know, certain artists, there's a pivotal explanation for how the two characters, how Jack and Ellie met and this band we are led to believe would not exist in this universe. So how in the world are you going to explain how they met if this band didn't exist? Right. The thing is, I can almost I- accept that if you follow through. Maybe maybe the problem... <laughs> maybe wow. The, you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe the problem I'm having is just that, like, I think by the end we're, we start to see some very conventional storytelling choices. Um, That's the rom-com element for yeah, sure. Yeah, which is fine. But I, maybe it's because we've been set up to, you know, 
uh, like like you say, Lindsay, like I heard the score music where it's like, okay, that's like a Mellotron and it sounds a little bit like Strawberry Fields and it's like, I'm being manipulated right mm-hmm. now and that's the point. And I want to just like give myself over to it. And I just waited for it to connect. Mm-hmm. Lars, you and I were talking uh, off mic about Jack's character and how he relates to Beatles songs and how he doesn't seem to necessarily have a relationship with Beatles Beatles songs that much going into this twist in the story and and just kind of this movie's odd relationship with Beatles songs in general. I mean, this is the thing. Any fan of the Beatles remembers when they first heard the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember my dad sitting me down when I was eight years old and putting on Revolver and then we got to Tomorrow Never Knows and he says, oh, this is a weird song. It has like sitars and backwards guitar in it. And I'm like, oh, I love this song because it has sitar <laughs> and backwards guitar on it. And, you know, and then that just like sets me up for the rest of my life for the kinds of things that I will enjoy. But you never get that sense from Jack's character that he's really thought much about the Beatles until he makes some like one off like jokes to mm-hmm. his friends, mm-hmm. like naming their song titles as you do in a movie about a band. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the thing that was frustrating to me because like all of a sudden he realizes, oh, nobody knows Beatles songs. I guess I'll play them. But I have no emotional attachment to why he cares so much about these songs, other than him being a musician and recognizing that they're well-written songs. I also had a reaction to this movie where there's a glimmer of an interesting point kind of early in this movie where he's playing people these songs for the first time, and there's a sense that they might not like them. And I thought that was interesting, not only about the difference between the way this guy performs the songs, he's not the Beatles, and the way the Beatles perform them, but also there's an interesting point to be made about hearing these things out of context. When the world first heard the Beatles in the early 60s, And now you're introducing them to the world in 2019 in a completely different marketplace where pop music audiences have experienced intense elation before. The Beatles may not have existed, but judging from the Ed Sheeran concerts we see... The model for Beatlemania exists. (laughs) the, The model for that kind of obsessive attachment to new music has already happened. The movie sort of posits that Beatles songs are so sturdily crafted and that there's such raw brilliance in these songs, which I'm not even disputing. I just thought it was a little more interesting when it seemed like he might still struggle to become famous with these songs because he's not the Beatles and it's not 19-freaking-64. And so, like, the movie is right on the cusp of having something interesting to say about context, about being in the right place at the right time, at being the right band for the right moment, that it then kind of gets away from in favor of plot machinations that we will not spoil the ending, but holy cow, I found the ending to this movie so unconvincing and unsatisfying. Mm I kept thinking in that moment where he's playing Let It Be for the first time to his parents, he remarks, this is going to be the first time anyone hears it. And I kept thinking, okay, there are two things that I'm supposed to think about here. It's one, what was my first reaction to hearing the Beatles? That if I were the first person to hear it, or when was the first time that I heard it? And that was when there was sort of that rom-com sentimental aspect that really did like tug at my heartstrings. Like, how did I come to be a Beatles fan? How did I, as a music fan, come to explore this sort of like canonical... It is impossible to imagine being a music consumer in 2019 and not having a cursory experience of the Beatles. So there's that. 
And then there's this idea to me of I kept thinking, okay, Jack is going to strike out because he's, you know, the starving artist trying to come up, trying to build his career. Does he have to sort of decode the discography of the Beatles in mm-hmm. order to make this fit? That is the magic of the Beatles because they had this this career trajectory. Like I kept waiting for there to be a thread that he's going to pull out. And when he releases his first, his big debut, it's just sort of a greatest hits of the Beatles. It's right. not like there's a broader artistic statement. So again, this idea of context, like, our forebears watched the Beatles evolve, and he's just releasing a greatest hits best of on Spotify? Yeah, and there are a couple of people who do react to, like, what were you thinking when you wrote that song? Like, there are a couple people who at least try to nudge at, like, where are these songs coming from with this guy? What about this guy's experiences? What about this guy's bio? What about this guy's life connects to these songs in any real way? Because some of these songs are very esoteric. Mm-hmm. And the, the movie only kind of only kind of glances at that. It, maybe, maybe this is the right time to talk about Ed Sheeran. Then Ed Sheeran <laughs> oh has gosh. Ed Sheeran has a, a sizable role in this movie. More it looks than in the trailer. I thought, more yeah. than yeah. I thought it's, he would. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's uh, he's you know he he made his way in Game of Thrones. Like he's 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 finding his job. <laughs> Here, here's the he thing. He died so he could live in this universe. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. Even though I don't think it entirely connects, this is the thing that's interesting to me about Ed Sheeran's presence in this movie. Is that that is a guy who you look at him divorced from everything that's happened with his career and you go really this guy this guy and um i feel the same way when i hear him yeah (laughs) but if you accept the idea that like this is somebody who has like at least like knows his way around a hook and crucially has some kind of innate understanding of how to take this sort of scruffy mumbly presence i mean his Face appeared on screen and people laughed in the theater. He hadn't said anything. Yet. <laughs> we all groaned. I think the three of us looked at one another. But he's managed to put it all together into mm-hmm. something that's marketable. And yeah. that feels at least like a nod to the specificity of the moment. It's just that like it doesn't come all the way around the other end for the central character. All right. Well, tell us what you think about the film yesterday. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we return, it will be time to talk about what's making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it with your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. It's easy to start a blog, an online store, or create an event, and you can share it all on social media in a click. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash pop culture to get 10% off. Support for NPR and the following message come from Luminary, the only place you can listen to the new podcast Anthem from John Cameron Mitchell and Brian Weller. Anthem is a podcast musical with 31 original songs delivered by 40 actors, including Tony Award winners Glenn Close and Patti LuPone. Listen to Anthem and other original podcasts only on Luminary. Visit luminary.link slash happy hour for your first two months of Luminary's premium content free. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time once again for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Daoud Tyler Amin, what's making you happy this week, buddy? I want to shout out a wonderful podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. It's a movie discussion podcast, and I know there are a lot of those. So uh, I figured I'd play the moment that really hooked me. This is Griffin Newman, one of the co-hosts, talking about Tim Burton's Batman Returns. 
what he's really into is like how people cope with trauma. And like a person who's already bad becomes worse. You know, Batman in this obsessive way that is just a coping mechanism becomes good, you know, question mark. But I think the key to this movie is like, this is the movie after Edward Scissorhands, which is so sort of didactic in this like, I'm Tim Burton, I feel weird. I feel like the scissor man in a town of normal happy people. And some of them are nice and some of them are mean, but I feel like I'm a different species and I don't belong here. And this is the movie that's him being like, is there such a thing as a normal person? I love that insight. And I saw Batman Returns a zillion times. It was a big movie for me when it was when I was a kid. And I was just like, I want to go see this movie again right away. So the pitch of Blank Check is they focus on directors who have some kind of big success early in their career. Mm. And Hollywood basically says, here's a bunch of money. Do whatever you want. Go crazy. And as they say on the show, sometimes the check's clear and sometimes they bounce. They've done series on Tim Burton, obviously, Christopher Nolan, uh, James Cameron, M. Night Shyamalan, maybe the ultimate oh, blank check sure, director. Oh, sure. That is a perfect example. <laughs> uh, the Wachowskis. Griffin Newman is a working actor. He's actually was on the Amazon version of The Tick that just wrapped up. And David Sims is a critic at The Atlantic. And even when they're doing bits, which they do a lot, they get lost inside tangents like you do uh, on a discussion show. But their commitment to detail and analysis, I think, is so fun and so eye-opening that you leave sort of wanting to go watch all these movies again, even the bad ones. So that's Blank Check with Griffin and David. Thank you, Dowd, Tyler Amin, Lindsay McKenna. What's making you happy this week? So, Stephen Thompson, last week a record came out, and I want to shine a light on this incredible record. It is called Patience. It is from the Philly band called Mannequin Pussy. It is their third album. So they come sort of out of this, like, Philly punk scene, veering a little bit more towards the screamy side of guitar rock. Here, it, they just bring everything and make it just this, like, perfect punk pop polish. This is a compact, like just shiny, beautiful ode to heartbreak, but also overcoming that. It just enwraps so many emotions that I, I can't recommend a record more right now. It's called Patience. It's from Mannequin Pussy. Go listen to it. This is a really great summer record. This is a good car record. Yes. Excellent pick. Lindsay McKenna, thank you so much. Lars Gottrich, what do you got? It is, uh, as you know, rosé wave season. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners are somewhat familiar with rosé wave, but if you're not, this is our third season running, uh, basically your ultimate summer pop music soundtrack. Right. And uh, I put it together with Lindsay McKenna hey. and front of the show, Marissa LaRusso, uh, yeah. every summer. And um, we did our Big Bang uh, a few weeks ago. It's got 102 songs. It's basically perfect for all your backyard parties and stuff like that. But... I am especially excited about a playlist we put out this week, a special guest playlist from the RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars winner, Trixie Mattel. Yeah. <laughs> she put together us a playlist about how she gets into drag. Basically, her, her drag soundtrack of like how she tucks and plucks and uh, staples, she says in her uh, very hilarious essay. She says, quote, one minute I'm an unprepossessing balding introvert with calloused hands, and then suddenly I'm a teenage viper doing a pre-lunch 
touch-ups after some light morning manslaughter between girlfriends. <laughs> and, uh, and she, there's a parenthetical, if you don't understand this jawbreaker reference, please stay away from me and my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's basically uh, all the songs that she used to get prepped for uh, a big drag party and it is a lot of fun and I am so honored that Trixie Mattel would contribute to the Rosé Wave canon. Long may Rosé Wave wave, buddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love you guys. All right, well, for me, this week on Wednesday, the finale of season 31 of The Amazing Race. Uh, wow. You love this show. I have watched this show uh, <laughs> since very, very early on. They're wrapping up a kind of quasi all-star season. I won't spoil how it ends because I haven't actually seen it yet but it features several old race teams including the team of Colin and Christy from season five now Colin and Christy in their original incarnation were a young couple from Texas that branded themselves something along the lines of team Texas extreme and basically he was this like thrill-seeking rage junkie who just like yelled a lot and they brought them back 15 years later. Now, there is a scene with Colin, and if you've, if you've watched The Amazing Race, you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. There's a scene in season five with Colin and a disobedient ox that culminates in one of the greatest lines in reality television history. The ox is running around, and Colin throws his fists to the heaven and yells, My ox is broken! <laughs> 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 and it is one of the greatest things I've I've ever seen. It is. It was. It, I should point out. It was recapped on television without pity by one Linda Holmes in one of the funniest essays I have ever read. This wow. is before I knew Linda. This is 15 wow. years ago. That recap is archived at brilliantbutcancelled.com, and we will put a link to it in the newsletter. They brought them back 15 years later, and Colin has transformed into mellow, supportive yoga dad. Wow. In a way that I just find incredibly heartwarming because it's a reminder that life is short, but it's also long. Mm -hmm. And people you remember as insufferable jag bags (laughs) can evolve into people you end up rooting for as I have rooted for Colin on season 31 of The Amazing Race. So what is making me happy is the arc of history (laughs) and how it sometimes bends toward not being awful. Uh, That brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at IDislikeSteven. You can follow Lindsay at Lindsay McKay. That's Lindsay with two Ys. You can find Lars at Total Vibration and Daoud at Art Sorority. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, that's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thanks, Steven. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. We will see you all right back here next week. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. So you're listening to this NPR podcast because you want to be informed. You want to learn something. But what if you need a little break? Well, then you want to check out Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. It's the show that lets your lizard brain enjoy itself for once. You can be serious again later. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.